curiously specific. We are curiously specific. sound of my Greg's paper bag cool. as I remove Greg's my bacon roll. Bacon roll. I can hear a, the raging roar of a motorway. That is the mighty M4 motorway. I did not think when reading Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising <laughs> that the first thing you'd want to talk about is the M4. It's motorways, yeah. This is a book about Anglo-Saxon and Celtic myth. It's a fantasy novel about an 11-year-old boy yeah. and his fears about growing up and having powers and weird things going on over Christmas time. And you want to talk about the M4. That's a bit weird. It's a bit weird. Well, I mean, like a lot of people, I'm, uh, I've got a stupendous and slightly sad fanboy attitude towards this book. I must have read it soon after it came out in the UK. It came out in 1975? 73. 73. So we like this book. I love this book. Because it's time-specific, very time-specific. It starts... In one way. Starts in... But not in another. Midwinter's day. And it goes... It's 12 to, days, isn't it? It's to 12 days of yeah. Christmas or something. Whatever. 12 days of Christmas. A boy called Will Stanton, whose 11th birthday falls on the 22nd of December? Something like that, yeah, yeah. Who turns out to be one of a secret society of... One uh, of the old ones. One of the old ones who are engaged in the... Ongoing and incessant battle between the dark and the light. Because I read this when I was about nine, I would think. She's very good at getting inside the head really of is. depicting what a boy of that age is. There's a bit here where Will says, he looked at Paul's threatening determination, Paul is his brother, yeah. and wondered how you explained to an elder brother that an 11-year-old was no longer quite an 11-year-old, but a creature subtly different from the human race fighting for its survival. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, I think when I was 11 I felt that too. Yeah, the, book, the book is set in a place that is called Huntercombe, which Susan Cooper herself has said is actually Dorney. Dorney near Eton and Dorney Windsor. Near, near, near Eton and Windsor, yeah. near, uh, south, just south of the uh, what, she, what Susan Cooper calls the Bath Road, which is the A4. Yeah. She wrote it in 1970-71 while she was living in America. History lesson on Susan Cooper, born in 1935 in Burnham, which is actually the other side of the Bath Road in Buckinghamshire, but moved out of there when she was 21, so what's that, 1956, and she went to Oxford. And then um, after that she got a job in London working for Ian Fleming. Uh-oh. Yeah. And then in 62 she was sent to America. She covered the Lee Harvey Oswald trial. And one of the things she says is that in the 60s she was terribly, terribly homesick. She wrote the first, what became the first book in the series, Oversea Under Stone, in about 62, while she was still in London. All oh, right, so this is the second book in a series. The second book in a series of five, right? But there are about five objects, or five sets of objects, that have to be found to keep the, the dark away. In The Dark is Rising, the objects, there's actually six objects called the signs, which Will Stanton, the hero, needs to collect I was, I was on a, um, there was a very good review online, which I've not got with me, on a fantasy gamer site, where they said, oh, anybody read this book? And 
<laughs> right, I'll tell you about his book. And one of the things they were saying was, he's not the seeker. He just basically hangs around and they turn up. There's no kind of seeking going on. I mean, as a role-playing game, this book is rubbish. <laughs> she wrote some of it in Massachusetts, where she was living, and she wrote some of it in, in the Bahamas. She wrote it in the Bahamas, where they were building from memory a house. in the Bahamas. They were building a house, and she said, "I had two ordnance survey maps on the cupboard door, which I referred to." I, oh, to I know where you're going to go with this. And um, I think I know which map she had. Yeah, of course, you've got the maps, haven't you? And that's why we're sitting next to the motorway. Well, if that isn't curiously specific, <laughs> you've got the maps, yeah. you've got dates, you've yeah. got the location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All we've got to do is go. If this is here, Right, so we're coming up the, uh, the M4, yeah. we're turning off at Junction 7. Now, according to my researchers, Tim, yeah, Junction 7 is the first junction in Britain's motorway network. This stretch of the M4, it's called the Maidenhead Bypass, was the first bit of motorway to be built in Britain. They started it in 1957. Why would they start at Junction 7 rather than Junction 1? Uh, well, it's Junction 7 now. What's Junction 7 then? <laughs> <laughs> what a stupid question. <laughs> now, it's called the Huntercombe Spur. The Huntercombe Spur. Oh, is that's it? What, that's what the bit of, this bit of road is called, the, the Huntercombe Hunter Spur. Huntercombe is the name of the village in, in the, the book. book. Back so we're over. here. So now we're going back over the M4. So we're heading down in towards Dorney now. Oh, cool. And we should see if... This is all built up now. So very different, right? Very different how it would have been in... So the, are you saying the motorway wasn't time. here? So my my contention is, is that she's writing this... She moved away from what we call Burnham in 1956. Yes. Right? They started building the motorway in 1957. Uh... Okay. She, she, she's writing this in the early 70s she's writing it from memory and she's describing a place that fundamentally doesn't exist anymore they've built this huge oh, motorway okay. so okay. she's describing a place which is why I think in her head it's 1950s it's, it's, it's the 1950s, 1950s. Well, so all, this, all this is new housing oh yes it is isn't it she's writing it in the early 70s she's already talked about homesickness and memory yeah. so she's describing the landscape of her childhood She's all, she talks about the, the uh, Will Stanton's house being the vicarage where she went to learn uh, Latin, which she hated. She talks about Dorney Court being the model for the uh, Miss, uh, Miss Greythorn's Manor. Yeah. So she's describing all this from memory. Yeah. And she also talks about having two ordnance survey maps on the wall. Because the motorway's not here, it's the biggest indicator for me that the landscape she's describing is the, pre, is the 50s landscape. The okay. Will Stanton's don't have a television. They talk about the docks freezing up over the winter. This is all stuff that didn't happen in the 70s, it happened in the 50s. Yeah, um, well the big freeze was 47, wasn't it? Okay, well, well but more, more, more importantly, the London docks were closing in the 70s. Yes. They weren't even a thing anymore. But then, now we're in Dorney. Here we are! Curiously specific. So I think this is Hunter Coon Lane. Right. So I, I, there's a bit of confusion about as to... As to well, well, we're standing outside. There's a road called Court Lane. Yep. That goes to the main road through the village, which I think is Huntercombe. Which Lane. goes to the church, though. Court Lane goes to the church. We've not found a church lane. No. This is now called Lake End Road. But Lake End Road smacks. But we're looking at a Tudor house or a, a, a tiled house with Tudor gables and with chimneys. Chimneys that looks out. And it's got. Fields. And it looks out towards the Thames. And it's got an old garage behind. Behind it, it and it's got a curved drive. Yeah. 
So I think this is not bad. I think it's, I think it's good. It's also it's in the as right, good as it gets. It's in the right place. On, so I printed out some maps. Right. And uh, on one of them is marked the vicarage. So Susan Cooper says the Stanton's house is modelled on the vicarage where she used to go and learn Latin. So that sounds, that sounds like promising. So we may have found the Stanton's house. Rooks. So here we are at St. James the Less, James the Less. Dorney, which is mentioned in the book, is it not? It's described as an old crumbling Saxon church, um, and there's a, there's a bit of an encounter there on Christmas Day. Is there? Yeah, the oh, dark, yes. The dark attack them in the church, and they find the walker in the, in the churchyard. Correct. We've just been into the churchyard. Can you I'm, find that bit? I'm trying to look for it now. While I look for it. I need to. I need to explain to our listener the uh, thrilling thing we found in the graveyard, which got me very excited. Oh uh, well, I'll go out there and do that while you okay. find your page. Okay. So I'll go out into the graveyard where the birds are singing, and we have a number of graves here. Interestingly, we do have one from 1972, which I maintain is when I think this book is set that the headmistress of Dorney School, Catherine Bennett, died on the 17th of May, 1972, aged 84 years. The evening brings all home. But also, it, right at the back of the graveyard here, is a slightly unusual thing for a, a, a pretty English country graveyard is um, a Celtic cross, as you might find on Iona or something like that, which is not unlike the symbol that, uh, that Will is trying to find, or one of the signs that he's trying to find, this cross. It's, it's very like it. And it's a memorial for Addy Kelly of Conklin, who died the 29th of October, 1932. So it's quite an obvious dark is rising sign in the middle of the graveyard. Lots of red brick and red tiles in here. Very Tudor, the whole place. Very pretty. Found it. Well, yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's six or seven pages. So basically, oh, please they come, don't do that. No, no, no. They come to the church for uh, for Christmas Day uh, service, and uh, they come out. And while they're in the church, the dark attacks them, and uh, the will and the old ones have to um, have to protect themselves and and the church from the uh, from the. But yeah, the vicar's pretty useless. The rector, the rector's quite useful. But there is quite an interesting thing where the rector says the rector spots the crosses 
on uh, they find the last of the signs they find the last sign in not the last sign but one of the signs in the church but we can't go and find again them. when you say find them it's revealed it's and revealed, you just give it to it's him. revealed to me this time <laughs> he um, doesn't have to do much looking <laughs> i can't remember it's saying. all a blur to me <laughs> it's all a blur to me well the the, vic- the the rector catches sight of one of the signs and he says it's uh, a sign uh, <laughs> The rector stood up, his smooth, plump face creased in effort to make sense of the incomprehensible. Basically, the stuff's been happening, and they've put rector and Paul, Will's brother, sort of to sleep while it's all been... Paul, the flutist. The the flutist. The flautist. Certainly it has gone, he said, looking slowly around the church. Whatever influence it was, the Lord be praised. He looked at the signs on Will's belt, and he glanced up again, smiling suddenly, an almost childish smile of relief and delight. That did the work, didn't it? The cross... Not of the church, but a Christian cross nonetheless. Ah, which is in fact that in cross. Fact, that cross over there. Over in the graveyard is. Celtic cross. Very old them crosses are, Rector, said old George, unexpectedly firm in career. Made a long time before Christianity, long before Christ. We are curiously specific. Right, so, so we found that we found the Dorney Court. The, we found the Dorney House. We found Dorney Court. Hall. We think we found the Stanton's house. Yeah, which we can see from where we're standing. We're standing on the corner of, well, bizarrely, the corner of Court Lane with Court Lane, because this road is called Court Lane now, and this road is called Court Lane on the Ordnance Survey. Right, but that's leading down to the church. So we think that first Court Lane is probably Church Lane. It leads down to St James the Less. Yes, the uh, the church. It also leads on to, and the thing we're struggling with is Dawson's Farm. Yes. They talk about going to Dawson's Farm on the way to the carol singing. Yes. Which is back that way. Uh, back the other, but they also the other side of town. But they also talk about Dawson's Farm being quite close to the churchyard, which yes. is in the other direction. But then you have a little bit of a clue. Well, I found something on the, what was the website? The Buckinghamshire Family History Society, <laughs> which talks about... That sounds like a hipster band. So this road, this road, Church, Court Lane, we think may have been called Church Lane. It bends around and it becomes Marsh Lane, just yep. a, bit, a bit further down there. And uh, it says on here, the old road known as Marsh Lane winds the other way towards Dorney Reach, which it does. One of the bends, interestingly called the old road, by the way, one of the bends called Climo's Corner, or Climo's Corner, was the site of the forge where the village blacksmith carried on his trade. Oh, now, the blacksmith they? in... The Dark is Rising is based on Dawson's Farm. Yes, so down that, down so towards down the that church. Way. The only other thing is I'm a bit creeped out by Dorney Court, this lovely Tudor hall here, yeah. has a garden centre yeah. and a cafe yeah. and local produce. Yeah. It's absolutely rammed on a Thursday. Yeah. Car park was full. Full of... Full of everybody's here. Look, there's more people coming. Well, they're all, re- they're all retired people, aren't they? The old ones. The gathering of the old ones. For cake. To eat cake. In their sensible waterproof garments. But there's loads of them. And, th- I mean, it's just... It's, it's really busy. Oh, my God. The old ones are gathering. <laughs> the walker is on the road. <laughs> the Bowden is on the rise. <laughs> <laughs> the Rohan is rising. <laughs> Crack the windows, howls hold the floor. Rains rot the rafters, and do you just have to snore? 
It's a most inclement calamity for the season of the night. Is that mouse playing football? Oh, I thought they didn't like the light. And the door. Right, so now we're walking down towards the Dorney Olympic Rowing Lake. Eaton Dorney. Which was obviously built for 2012, so it's a new addition itself. On our right, though, we think we found a farm that we think is a good candidate for Dawson's Farm. And we think we now have got it all right. You walk out of the vicarage, yeah. you walk past the lodge, yeah. you then get to the graveyard on your right. We've yeah. now realised there, that there's a new bit to the graveyard and the old bit. And we think Rook's Wood was probably where the new bit is now. Yeah. And then to your left is a lane leading towards the church. Which, which is, doesn't have a name on it, but we speculate it could have been called Ch- church, church Lane. Church Lane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we're wondering if Court Lane is what Susan Cooper calls Huntercombe Lane. Yeah. Because there's a bit of cause there's confusion there, because it's Huntercombe Lane South. Yeah. Right. You only call something 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 south to distinguish it from something something else. But there's no other Huntercombe Lane around here. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. But I think that, but generally about the way that the. It's described in the opening chapters of the book of the location that is now working out for us. Yes. About right, and it's and it is quite a sort of spooky English. Well, the thing to emphasise is country the landscape. It's flat. very, very flat. It's very flat. The water there's is trees, rising. Trees, trees. <laughs> there's trees and there's grass, and it's it's river eye. Now the good news <laughs> is we haven't encountered a golf course. No, but we have. Well, we are on private property. We are on Eton College property now. Now I can do you a little Eton College. Uh, uh, connection to this book. Go on. So when they um, go singing, oh yes, at the at the lodge, carol singing. Okay, when they, no, but when they go and do, that they take refuge. Oh yes. And um, brother Paul plays the flute. He does. A bit like Jethro Tull. Ian Anderson. Anyway, and uh, and that Will sings beautifully. He does. He sings a song. Did you check those lyrics out? No, I didn't. So they're not made up by Susan. Is it Houseman? It's Houseman. Yeah. A Shropshire lad. A Shropshire lad. So, of course, she is tapping into, again, another idea of nostalgia for the English, the lost English landscape. George Orwell said that when he was at school at Eton, all the boys, the younger boys of 13, 15... When he was there, when the Shropshire lad came out, they were nuts for it. They memorised it, and they and it was set to music, and they used to sing it all the time. They said it was a great favourite amongst the Eton sort of thirteen to fifteen year olds. Oh my god! Uh, a being a being a poem about sort of lost innocence and the journey from boy to man. standing by a sign that says Old Way Lane so Will plodded along passing garden walls trees and then the top of a small 
unpaved track, scarcely a road known as Tramp's Alley, that wandered off from the main road and eventually curled round to join Huntercombe Lane close to the Stanton's house. Right, so it's a shortcut from the bus stop. Yes, which is on the Bath Road, right? It's on the Bath Road. So he meets Merriman there and goes, As well as the name, there was the road. Do you know the name of this track? Tramp's Alley, Will said automatically. That is not a real name, Merriman said with distaste. <laughs> well, no, Mum won't ever use it and we're not supposed to. It's ugly, she says, but nobody else I know ever calls it anything else. I'd feel silly if I called it Old Way. Will stopped suddenly, hearing and tasting the name properly for the first time in his life. He said slowly, if I called it by its real name, Old Way Lane. Standing under the sign saying Old Way Lane, you would feel silly, said Merriman grimly. But the name that would make you feel silly has helped to save your life. Old Way Lane, yes. And it was not named for some distant Mr Old Way. The name simply tells you what the road is, as the names of roads and places and old lands very often do, if only men would pay them more attention. It was lucky for you that you were standing on one of the old ways, trodden by the old ones for some 3,000 years, when you played your little game with fire, Will Stanton. Very good. So, at the moment, we're standing in the middle of what looks like a 1950s estate. So isn't, it doesn't feel like 3,000 years old. So we've walked, we've walked from Huntercombe Lane over the Huntercombe Spur, the, yeah. ma- the motorway, over a bridge, from, down a very, very nice pathway that's semi-paved. Yeah. And when we've got to the other side, we've discovered two interesting things. One is that the road comes out on a t- what looks like an alley. Tramps, Tramps Alley, Alley. That runs. You figured out on Google Maps. It runs all the way back up to the A4. To, yeah, to the roundabout there. And Trump's Alley becomes this road that is now called Old Way Lane. And again goes down to the M4, where it doesn't seem to be a perceivable crossing. So I'm no. now coming round to your way of thinking that she's so remembering can, this from when but if there you, wasn't you can, the M4. You seem to be able to follow the line all the way down. And then no, if you get across the M4, village. and you can, if you get across the M4, and you get across the the Jubilee the River, River, neither of which were there in none. On both banks, there's a clear public footpath. Yeah. Straight line to Dorney from yeah. here to there. Without, so if those two, if the, if the motorway and the river weren't there, you could walk straight there. So this is the old way. This is the old way. This is where dark and magical things happen. Yeah. Or not. Or not. At the moment, they wash their cars on Sunday. And kids are coming home from school. Yeah. And people are looking at us slightly oddly because we're standing around looking. Well, we're, yes. We're it's the walkers. We're the weird walkers. The dark is rising. Fantastic. Very pleased we found that. So they paved over the old ancient way and turned it into a suburban estate. It's still there, Tim. It's still there. Well, I want to make the case to you now. You, you've been banging, well, on, well, banging on about the fact that it was written with, with a 50s imagination. Yes. And not sticking to the task at hand, which is to be curiously specific about dates and places. I refer you to the carol singing sequence. The gubrious Mrs. Horniman, who did for their mother once a week, and had been born and bred in the East End of London until a bomb had blown her house to bits 30 years before. Oh. Okay. Yeah. 30 years before. She had always given them a silver sixpence each, and so she still did coolly disregarding changes in the currency. Uh, Wouldn't be Christmas without sixpences, Mrs. Horniman said. I laid a good stock in before we got landed with all them decibels, so I did. Yeah. When did we get landed with decimals? 71, 72. February 71. Yeah. 
And then 30 years before is the Blitz, is 41, 42. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Well, it's not the 50s. My point is, it is emotionally the 50s. Now, the other thing I want to talk to you about yeah. that I think dates it around this time. Interesting you say it might be Christmas 71. Yeah. Because, of course, I said to you earlier, culturally, Britain is going through a yeah. kind of a sure, moment sure. of extreme interest in, in sort of Celtic and Old English lore and fantasy. It's going, Tolkien is on the rise. Yeah. And music, musically, there's a lot of it going on. So as I said to you, you'll recognise uh, this. The Dark Lord rides in force tonight and time will tell us all. Oh, throw down your plough and hoe, rest not to lock your homes. Side by side we wait the might of the darkest of them all. I hear the horses thunder down in the valley below. I'm waiting for the angels of Avalon. Waiting for the eastern glow. <laughs> When's that come out? November, December 1970. Yeah. It's in the air. It's in the it air. Really Led is. Zeppelin's with Sandy Denny. Sandy Denny singing. Right, and then, and then, blow me, if it doesn't actually start happening in Windsor Great Park. So the Windsor Free Festival was organised by London commune dwellers, notably Ubi Dwyer and Sid Rawl. Oh God, they sound awful. Forerunners of the Stonehenge Free Festival, coming as they did from squatting and commune movements, with an anti-monarchist choice of site in the Queen's back garden. Attendance was about 700 in the first year. Police kind of broke it up as well. They actually, by 75, they were actually put in prison. And, the, and there was a sort of, and there were more police than there were hippies. But what's, what's brilliant about it, if you look at the, there's a really good site called UKRockFestivals.com. Here they are, look, the Brotherhood Commune. A bunch of hippies, bunch of hippies. turning up, basically on the other side of Dorney Commerce. The, 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 Royal Vin, the Royal Windsor Pop Festival became a pop flop today as one of the organisers was arrested on his way from the show, to the show and hundreds of fed-up fans headed for home. Paul Pawlowski, founder of the Free Love Church of Aphrodite, Jesus. was organising the festival, was stopped by police as he cycled towards Windsor Great Park. But they, they, they were going to have a gig. There's a, there's a great line-up, there's a flyer for it. The happening was got together by longtime street activist anarchist Bill Dwyer and Rachel, his old lady, while collecting signatures in opposing the Night Assemblies Bill, uh, as well as Paul Poloski, who was also known as the Reverend Father Fuck of the Church of Aphrodite. And then some of the bands they've got, they've listed that they, they sort of—it's very funny—they they they claim they're sort of claiming that the uh, incredible string band and Donovan are going to turn up. There's no evidence that they did. But there are some other really great bands in here called Sardonicus, Oberon, Earthcraft, Headshop, the Global Village Trucking Company, Equinox. I've actually found a bit of YouTube, YouTube footage of Equinox. Terrible old racket. So those, they're all, they're all but that. Notice how they're all, they're all, they're, they're all, all druidy, mythy, yeah. myth, mythy stuff. It's on the rise. It's on the rise. All yeah. that. So that's definitely part of what's going on here in my mind. Even in again, if she's just picking it up, sort of almost sort of through the skin ambiently, that idea that they're that 
that Britain is going through a moment where there, there is a lot of sort of druidic, Celtic, folkloric stuff happening in music and culture, but some of it's by the, cre the dangerous young cult of culture people, and it's not good. But, only but there is a sense in which this book is like, it is out of time. I mean, it's, it's weirdly out of time. The way they talk to each other. And men cannot understand that. The way they talk to each other, the, the, the fact the fact, the, the, you know, the, the way they care about each other is just very unmodern. It's, very, it's very nostalgic. Oh, that's the story about you, that does. And I'm not saying it was like that in the 50s, but I'm saying that people imagine it was. Okay. Actually, you stand on that corner on that road, and you can find little pockets of it. You stand on the corner of Church Lane, Court Lane, Rookwood on the corner, you go, there's something about this here that is quite, it's not spooky, but it's, it's quite resonant in a way that the rest of this place just doesn't. All the birds are leaving But how can they know It's time for them to go as they rose over the churning river that Will saw the island, an island where none had been before in this swollen torrent divided by strange glinting channels. He thought as the white horse jolted him to earth again among bare dark trees, it's a hill really, a piece of high ground cut off by the water. And suddenly he knew very clearly that he would meet great danger here. This was his place of testing, this island that was not an island. Once more he looked up into the sky and silently, desperately called for Merriman, but Merriman did not come, and no word or sign from him came into Will's mind. So we're down by the Thames here now. We're outside at Eaton. We think it's Eaton College Boathouse. Yeah. It's rather a grand thing. It is. So we're at the southern end. Are we at the southern end, or what would you say, the eastern end of Dorney Lake? Where yeah, we've come across the common. Touches the Thames. So we've come across the common. So yeah. exactly as you would, you'd ride across the common, get to the Thames, and then go across. So he would have jumped over, the horse would have jumped over the Thames around here. Yeah. In fact, there looks like a horsey kind of track. Well, there's a horse track there. Is that a horse track? That's Windsor Racetrack. <laughs> and also there's the Spanish riding school around here. The it's Spanish it's riding horse school. country. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is the Windsor Racetrack. So probably just, yeah, that's we were just going back to the Windsor Racetrack. During the, during the, when this big kind of rain comes down and the river rises. A big boat a appears, boat a treasure appears. ship, a Viking treasure ship, basically. Viking or Saxon? Well, it says he looked like Viking, and he says, oh, he was part Viking, this king. All right, so says part Viking, book. part Saxon. Yeah, it says. Uh, so I was looking up, and it says it's one of three kings who are it does in say that boats. In the book, yes. And this isn't the great king whose who's location we haven't found. Presumably Arthur. Yeah, so, he's, so it specifically says it's not Arthur. It's not Arthur. So who are the two other great kings who would be buried in, in, underwater in a ship? Locrinus, the legendary king oh, of the Britons. So Albanatus, Albanatus received Scotland. Scotland. Was Albert Camba? Camba received, received Wales, and, and Locrinus. Uh, Locrinus got England. This is right. And Locrinus was was the king of modern day England. He wasn't. Well, of he's completely the boundaries mythical. of modern day. No, he's completely mythical. It doesn't say that here. But he is. Locrinus no, is, 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 is. So you know the the, the theory of the kings of Britain is that. The Brut Trojans, yes, yes, Brutus of Troy. Yeah, it's called Britain after yeah. Brutus. Are you saying that's all made up? It's all made up, 
and Lacrinus is Brutus's son, so it's at least 2,000 years BC. So there's no way he's a Saxon king, is what I'm saying. Even if he's true. <laughs> Lacrinus. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's what we were saying about her merging stuff inside her head. I'll tell you why he's quite a good, why it's quite a good story, is because it's all about being um, uh, uh, buried in rivers. Being the, okay. The, the, basically, what seems to happen is every time a king is vanquished, yeah. so he vanquishes Humber the Hun. Humber the Hun? Yeah, who was fighting with his brother Camber against... Against Lacrinus. This is all in Mom- Jeffrey and Monmouth, I'm sure. Right, it is. and the reason why the Humber is called the Humber is because that's where, when he was vanquished, Humber was Humber the Hun was left. Was, was Can I just point out, Jeffrey and Monmouth was a terrible, terrible liar. It's all made up. <laughs> it's a terrible lie. And then Lacrinus, terrible, terrible just to go on, then Lacrinus. <laughs> here's a good thing. Regardless, though. so he 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 had a mistress called Estrildis. Of course, he did. Right, yeah. and who he secretly loved Estrildis, who he locked in a cave. Beneath London for seven years. Yeah, that sounds like. So there's free. a cave beneath London. No, there isn't. For keeping keeping your mistress in. No, there isn't. <laughs> there is. No, there isn't. <laughs> that must be one of the other books. That must be one of the other Susan Cooper books. Jeffrey Monmouth missed that bit. Jeffrey Monmouth was a Norman who was writing all this stuff so that the Normans could have, could go around and killing all the Welsh. That's the whole reason this book exists. But look, so this is interesting though that basically Lacrinus then he went and had another battle about basically about with his ex-wife Gwendolyn I'm really worried the way you're reading this like it's like a documentary no but it could be good though (laughs) he lost that and so he got dumped in the river Stour so that's where he is which is why it's called what what the the the, the, (laughs) the, yeah the Crinus the Stour yeah and then and then there's another one where somebody else gets dumped in the Thames so so basically, yeah. no, the myths, the myths are good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but no, but the myths, the whole idea is that kings get put in rivers. Yeah, yeah. Don't they? Yeah, yeah. Kings and rivers. Yeah. yeah. So that's part of the, what she's getting at, don't you think? She's again, it's sort of like it's not thorough research. It's just she's done more research. Done more research than Jeffrey of bloody Monmouth. It's a good story, isn't it? Let me tell you, it's just a good story. Jeffrey. It's a good story. Don't stole my Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's you know you think it's all very well for her to sit in the Caribbean and make up stories about motorways that didn't exist or did exist well, Jeffrey Monmouth, as soon as Jeffrey sat, Monmouth comes up with Oxford a good, good old story about locking his mistress in a cell under, the Lond- in, in, under London you're not having it we are curiously specific we've made it to the great Park of Windsor, park. and we've we're in search of Hearn's Oak because uh, this is the climax, isn't it? What happens is that well, it's another story where um, the leading character jumps on the back of a horse and then gallops an awful long way from where he was, like in Stick of the Dump. Yeah, and uh, jumps over the river and comes to Windsor Great Park, which uh, we've made it to. It's rather we, it's huge. It's just it's just stupendously big, isn't it? You forget. Yeah. And uh, the reason they come to uh, Winter Great Park is that they have to deliver... Was it the white horse will come to the hunter? Is the it's line, another one it? of those nomic, men will not understand. Men will not understand. He just talks like this all the time, doesn't he, Merriman? It's sort of just like... And the white mare wheeled them round away from the river and rose into the air, skimming the foaming water, crossing the Thames to the side that is the end of Buckinghamshire. And the, they come to Winter Great Park, and Merriman says to Will, Do you know Hearn's Oak? Yes, of course, Will said at once. He had known the local legend all his life. Is that where we are, the big oak tree in the Great Park? Now, I read that and I thought, oh, well, everyone knows where the 
big oak tree in the Great Park. Turns out it's probably got a little sign on it, and, uh, yeah. and people are there. No, it's not true, though, is it? No, it's not true. It's not true, but I can tell you some stuff about Hearn the Hunter and the Hearn's Oak. Yeah. Because I think this is quite important. Because really, I think it's central to the, the whole book, really. So he, 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 the, the white horse was go to the hunter, and Hearn the Hunter is this mythical figure who was a ghost associated with Windsor Forest and Great Park in the English county of Berkshire. Or Berkshire. Yeah. He's said to wear antlers upon his head, like, yeah. um, like he does, yeah. ride a horse, torment cattle and rattle chains. And the earliest me- mention of Hearn comes from William Shakespeare's play The Merry Wives of Windsor. Which I was really surprised by, because I thought it had been around for much longer. Than no, that. and here it is. The lines are, Sometime a keeper here in Windsor Forest doth all the winter time at still midnight walk around about an oak with great ragged horns and there he blasts the tree and takes the cattle and makes milk kine yield blood and shakes a chain in a most hideous and dreadful manner you have heard of such a spirit and well you know the superstitious idle headed eld received and did deliver to our age this tale of Herne the Hunter for a truth and all, but also this tree Herne's Oak yeah, now let's. So, so if we go and try and find it. incredibly complicated. I know. If you go and try and find it, which we are today, try, we, are, we, we sort are. of half heartedly trying to find it. Well, okay. we walked quite a considerable distance through Windsor Great Park. Yeah. So what I've found out, obviously, is that it, on some OS, old OS maps, I think, it shows Hearns Oak a little to the north of Frogmore House in the home park yeah. adjoining Windsor, which is to the north of where we are now. We're quite near Frogmore House. This tree, though, was felled in 1596. Right. And then in 1838, Edward Jesse, whoever he is, claimed the different tree in the avenue was a real Hearns Oak, and this gained in popularity, especially with Queen Victoria. But then this tree was blown down in 1863, and Queen Victoria had another tree planted on the same site. The Queen's tree was then removed in 1906 when the avenue was replanted. It was removed in 1906, and then Edward VII planted another one. Yeah on the site in Home Park yeah. where the 1796 one had been. Right. And it's apparently still there in Home Park. But Home Park is part of Frogmore House. Do you know what's on there now in Home Park? No, what's on there now? Golf course. <laughs> <laughs> we think we've, we've found a very suitable oak tree. Oh, that's true. There's one in the middle of the field there. There's one in the middle of the field which you can't get to because it's got a big iron fence around it. Well, it's got an iron fence and a very stern notice yeah, about act of terrorism or something. Serious Crime and Terrorism Act. You're not allowed in it. I um, think that might be the free festival. It's, it's hi- hippies have ruined it for everybody. It's described in the book. The hippies ruined it. Will was straining to see ahead through the murk. In the intermittent light, he could make out the shape of a solitary oak tree, spreading great arms from its short, tremendous trunk. Unlike most other trees inside it bore not the smallest remnant of snow and a shadow stood beside its trunk the size of a man. Now that could quite easily be that oak tree. Over yeah, there, yeah. Near, bit, near here. We haven't got to the home part one because, as we say, it's a golf course. So, no, uh, no. So we're in, the, we're in roughly the right place. We're in the right, place. Place. We're we're right, roughly the right part place. of the world. Now, I just want to say a couple of things about Hearn the Hunter is that in the wild hunt, the fact that they do that wild hunt business. Yes, the hounds. Right, so that he's associated with that. But that's actually, again, it, that's a... That's a Norse uh, myth, right? And not a not an not Anglo-Saxon one. one, and has been sort of mashed up over time. Yeah, and that generally, Hearn the Hunter has been he's he's he could be Sir Nonos, so he could be part of French folklore. Right, uh, he could be somebody Horn who was one of the park rangers who was hanged on a tree for right. for some crime, and is the ghost of him, or he could indeed 
be a part of a, of a Norse myth that does incorporate that came over to Britain. Right. So it's all a big old nobody knows. And then of course what happened was that the first person to sort of like assimilate it into a kind of English myth, Shakespeare. Yeah. So she's in good company, Susan Cooper, about is, just yeah. sort of assimilating stuff yeah. and turning it into something that feels sort of authentic well, for Well I the live world in Hearn Hill. I know, that which means makes, nothing. Which makes me feel like I live on a lie, really. Well, so now I'm going to refer you just finally to a great article in the New Statesman, English Magic, How folk- Folklore Haunts the British Landscape. Oh, nice, I like it. Okay, The Land of the Green Man by Caroline Larrington shows us how supernatural stories can help us understand reality. It's basically a review of her, her book. She tells a great story about a pair of children found in Suffolk yeah. uh, during the reign of King Stephen. Uh, they couldn't speak English and their skin was bright green and at first they wouldn't eat anything but raw beans. The boy died but the girl grew up, got married and learned English. She said they had come from a place called St Martin's Land where the sun never shone. They had heard a beautiful sound and followed it into a cave and when they came out of the cave they were in Suffolk. She knew now that the sound was the ringing of church bells. And this then has been taken on by uh, Robert Burton in Anatomy of Melancholy that children fell from the heavens. Uh, various other writers have taken it. And did you know that the, the myth about moon dwellers being green and little green men from space comes from that Suffolk autumn myth of the Middle Ages? Oh. Right. So, supposedly, or there's a chain of stories yeah, yeah, that lead yeah. through it. So she talks about that and says... Uh, she talks about Alan Garner a lot, actually, which is quite... Now, she, talk, she says this about... So the green man, she says that, you know, the, the green man is... There are lavish coffee table books outlining the history of this ancient vegetation god, half man, half shrub, who gives us a glimpse of what our native religion was like before the coming of Christianity when we all lived in the greenwood and were supposedly at one with nature. Sound familiar? Yeah, right, yeah. Right? Except, of course, he's no such thing. Yeah. The green man dates back to 1939 when he appeared in a learned article by Lady Raglan who concocted him by conflating certain folk conditions with the foliate heads found in medieval churches. I usually find people who fall for this kind of spiritual but not religious stuff intensely annoying. But Larrington shows more tolerance as she observes the way we invented this newly ancient idea and used it to help us realign our relationship with the environment and our past. That's really good, isn't it? There's a nice little uh, Susan Cooper quote about that, actually. Hmm. About that's resonant to that I found a Richie interview she was interviewed by the University of Rochester's Camelot project okay so you can imagine what their angle on all this yeah, stuff yeah right yeah she Camelot says, I grew up in Buckinghamshire in what was then a countryish area 22 miles outside London I had an awareness of the past that I never had to think about interesting mm. there was an Iron Age fort a couple of fields away there was a Roman pavement that somebody had found in his field Windsor Castle I could see from my bedroom window Things like that give a sense of layers and layers of time mm. and of the stories that stick to those layers and develop through them, even though you may not realise that you've got them. Mm-hmm. Curiously specific. We are curiously specific. Okay. My original Puff and Coffee is signed by Susan Cooper. Because I went to her, she did an event at uh, Waterstones Piccadilly a few years ago and Margaret Sedgwick interviewed her. How old were you then? I was, I was 40-something. And um, you went, you went and queued to get a signature I, 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 when you were in your forties. I did, I did. And Brilliant. It, but also, also, I, I was such a pathetic fanboy that I even asked a question from the audience. Oh, what did you ask? It was a really stupid question. She was really grumpy about it. What would you? What did you ask? Why do you write books for children, Susan? She goes, I don't. 